The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you for tuning in. Before we get into the interview, I would be honored if you would consider going to thepaulleslie.com and clicking support the show. There are quite a number of things I want to accomplish with the Paul Leslie Hour, and you can help me get more of these interviews out there to the masses. It only takes a moment, and it makes a world of difference. Last but not least, tell someone about the Paul Leslie Hour. Let them know in whatever way you can. And now, let's get into the interview. Hey, hey, it's me. All right. How are you, Paul? I'm good. How are you, Danny? I'm good. Nice day out here. You're in Washington State, correct? Yep. Near Seattle. Okay. Well, thank you so much for making the time to do this. Yeah, my pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to the man that you hear on the other end there. Uh, A lot of you have heard him your whole life. You definitely have heard stuff that he's written. I think he's one of the great American artists. He's written some wonderful songs. He's made some wonderful recordings. Just to tell you a little more about him, one of the best ever story songs, I think, and one of my favorites is Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues. It's a hit song in addition to the Danny O'Keefe version. He has said that that's a song that has legs. It's been covered by Elvis Presley, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Conway Twitty, Leon Russell, Jerry Lee Lewis, Earl Clue did an instrumental interpretation. Then there's Mel Torme, Dwight Yoakam, recently Steve Forbert. Some of his other songs have been covered by Miranda Lambert, Jackson Brown, Jimmy Buffett, Alan Jackson, Allison Krauss, John Denver, Ben Harper. That's just a few. <laughs> So, Danny O'Keefe, it's a pleasure to have you on here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Pleasure to be here. So, Danny, something that I notice whenever I hear you singing, you have a very distinct voice. How did you develop this voice of yours? Uh, question, I, I don't really know. I mean, I had it inherently, you know, it's, it's genetic in that sense. Mm-hmm. But I also had it. An extraordinary, he was more than a teacher, although he was certainly a teacher. A man by the name of Warren Berigian was somebody who I met in, I don't know, 70, 71, somewhere in there. When I had moved down to the Los Angeles area, I was living in Hollywood, and a friend of mine had gone to see Warren Berigian and uh, raved about him. And I was singing all right, but I I still had some problems with my lungs, with my chest, and I went to see him for a few sessions, and uh, he opened me up incredibly. And after working with him for not all that long, uh, he had really changed the range and the color of my voice, and much of that still remains. It was They were like permanent changes. I probably don't have quite as much of a range, but I still have three octaves that you know are, are highly functional. Uh, I just don't use a lot of that anymore uh, when I'm singing because... I don't need to, but I think that was largely the, you know, the the biggest moment. Um, I was singing fine before that, but it just gave me some, 
some other elements in my voice that have really, uh, over the years, proven to be uh, now essential. Can you tell us about the early writing you did? Not necessarily just songwriting, but just any kind of writing that you did. Well, I, before I really had any kind of um, uh, any kind of command of an instrument, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't really even have a guitar. And I'd started writing poetry, and that's you know was the beginning of you know learning how to you know how to write couplets and you know the beginning of lyric writing. And when I was twenty or so, twenty one, uh, I couldn't stand it any longer. I was uh, working a job, trying to go to school, and living in a boarding house, and uh, was really getting you know uh, pretty close to suicidal. And I borrowed a guitar from a friend and. I mean, I played it until my hands, you know, ached and blistered and bled and calloused over, and I kept on playing it, and I haven't stopped since. And I think of it largely as a um, such an emotional resource, uh, a, a resource of feeling, or certainly a, a sounding board to feeling. And it's been an extraordinary thing in my life. So you would say that the 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 playing of music and the writing of music, it, it almost has a therapeutic edge to it. Oh, it definitely does. I mean, in large part, that's, I think, why people listen to music, even though they wouldn't wouldn't call those actions of listening therapeutic, but the, the end benefit of them is. I mean, you know, think of songs that were formative to you in in the, your, in your fragile years of teenage and young adulthood, when you know the the world was probably not such a friendly place, and uh, there were all kinds of pitfalls, and uh, having your you know your favorite mix list, your mixtape of songs that kind of buoyed you up, or you sang along with, and you know sort of exercised your feelings in the process. Uh, I think that's the, the great gift of music. You were mentioning uh, a second ago formative songs, and I'm hoping you can tell the listeners out there about the artists and maybe some of the songs that are the nearest and dearest to you. Well, when I was, uh, I don't know, I guess I was probably about 19 and just kind of learning my craft, didn't know, you know, how to play very well, you know, probably had five chords and that was about it. And I played in a little coffee house in Minneapolis called The Coffee Break. And I played on weekends, and Dave Ray and Sonny Glover, Tony Glover, played on uh, the weekends. And at one point, uh, the guy who ran the coffee house brought in Gary Davis, Reverend Gary Davis. And I got, because I had a car, I got to be his roadie for a week. And uh, that was an extraordinary experience, even though I, I, couldn't play well enough to, you know, sit there and, and watch his hands and then play along. His playing, and uh, to another extent, the playing of Mississippi John Hurt, were were foundations of how I approached the guitar. And if you go on YouTube, he had a, a song called Cocaine that uh, is a very famous song that Dave Van Ronk recorded and Jackson Brown recorded and rewrote the lyrics. And it's kind of a, you know, it's part of the, folk singer's bible but if you listen to how he played it it's quite extraordinary uh it's 
like I say, it's in, you know, it's in that, that lexicon of, you know, how do you learn to how to play guitar? Well, listen to that. You know, you can master that song. You've learned how to play guitar. When people go through and they listen to the stuff that you have recorded and also the other songs that people recorded of stuff you wrote and co-wrote, you'll notice that some of the songs were written just by you, but you've also had some really incredible, incredible co-writers. Some of them have been guests on this show. Vince Melamed, the late Tim Kreckle. Can you tell us yeah. about the first time you wrote with somebody else? Ah, I wonder who that was. It could have been John Vesner, uh, who I spoke to just the other day, uh, and he wrote a, a song of the year, I can't remember what year, that uh, his wife Kathy Mateo recorded called Where Have You Been? And he was someone I had met very early in his career, not so early in mine. And when I came to Nashville, because I, had, I hadn't really ever written with other people, uh, and I missed some some great opportunities when I was recording at Atlantic uh, Hall and Oates were recording a band in luncheonette with the same producer that I was recording with Arif Martin. And, you know, they said, well, what, you know, what, what do you think about trying to write together? And I didn't know how to write with other people. You know, a couple of times I tried to write with, uh, you know, Glenn Fry and Don Henley of the Eagles, and they just had another, kind of system that they used and then I sort of never figured it out because when I write I tend to write pretty intensely and kind of all at once you know if it's a good song it tends to it tends to show its bones fairly quickly as you're as you're you know either playing the guitar or trying to work through the lyrics and it took me a while to figure out how to write with other people and it was kind of a not necessarily a requisite of writing in Nashville, but I mean the way that everybody there kind of looked at it as writers was that if you had a couple of writers, you had a couple of publishing houses that might work the song and maybe you'd get a cut where, you know, if you were just working by yourself, maybe you wouldn't. And I don't know if that's, if that's true. I, I think a good song is a good song. And if it's played in front of the right artist that they'll do it, it doesn't matter who and how many people wrote on it. But I think maybe John Vesner and, and, He's a, he's still a wonderful writer, and still writes lots with you know Tom Paxton and his uh, partner Don Henry, and probably lots of other people in Nashville too. Well, what makes a good song a good song? I think a good song is is that it has resonance for lots of different reasons, but it resonates with the listener. You identify with it; it catches your hopes and dreams, and maybe uh, connects to, you know, issues of tenderness and pain that you are or have experienced. But it, it, it has resonant characteristics. And, you know, especially the ones that you hum along or sing along with, you know, they, they're deeply embedded within you. And you know, they come back periodically. You, you hear them even at a distance. And all of a sudden, there's a whole diorama of... Uh, you know, visual context as well as emotional context that they they resonate. Well, a lot of your songs have really resonated with people and also have resonated with other artists to the point where they want to record what you write. Who was the first person to record a Danny O'Keefe song? Somebody other than you. 
God, I wonder. The Cow Sills uh, did a version of Covered Wagon. I, I think that's the version that Miranda Lambert heard. First one I actually really remember because I didn't know about that cut until years later. But uh, the first one that I remember that uh, I thought was moving and, and really important was uh, Judy Collins' cover of Angel Spread Your Wings. I think even, I mean, I don't even know if anybody had kind of really covered Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues much at that point. But having I mean, Judy Collins was a, a, an important interpreter of songs to me and having her cut one of my songs you know, was a highlight, still is. You know, she's a, a, an old dear friend. I can't think of any song that Judy Collins has recorded that I didn't just love. <laughs> you know, she just is one of our greatest singers ever. <laughs> well, that was one of the things that, that really was a hallmark of hers, that she really understood a good song and not only how to sing it and interpret it, but she knew what a good song was and is, still does. You use that word resonance, and as I was mentioning at the beginning, just there are not many songs that, I mean, really, when you look at Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues, how many songs can somebody say that Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Earl Clue, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, I mean, th this song has really, really captured the imagination and the heart of a lot of singers. Did you know when you were writing it, I've got a special one here? I didn't know when I was writing it. Uh, it, it was one of those songs that, and I think of this in, in some ways as, as what the best songs are. It came very quickly. I know exactly where I was. I can I can see myself sitting in that you know particular place. And I think I had one extra verse that I threw away that didn't work. And the song was, you know, pretty much intact at that point and i mean i liked it it was an easy you know healing song but i don't think that i knew that it it was something uh not necessarily a hit but something that had again resonance uh when i played it for the man who was my publisher at that point a man in seattle by the name of jerry denon and it was one of those songs that you could see yeah i don't know if it was the dollar signs or you know, whatever had happened in, you know, the listener's eyes that kind of told you that it maybe had some legs. And and he tried to run it and wasn't successful. I can't remember who the very first artist was that cut it. I think maybe Nat Stuckey, but I'm not positive about that. But after my version, you know, was a hit in 72, then all kinds of people began to cover it. And then I've been very fortunate. It's become somewhat of a... Uh, of a standard at this point. Yeah, I would say so. Now, this might be a, a tough one, but who do you think really, really knocked that song out of the park with the version that they did? Well, I don't know about knocked out of the park, but my favorite version was Waylon's, and largely because Waylon just did it his way. He made it his song, and that's what I think, you know, is is important a lot of people you know basically just copied my arrangement and some of them even used the same band that i had used the memphis boys and Waylon just you know he was Waylon. he did it his way and that was one of the things i loved about him and i still feel that way when i listen to it and there are lots of other good versions i love willie's and you know elvis was uh, i wish it had 
you know, had a, a little more, I wish more people had heard it, but a lot of people have heard it now. It was on an album called Good Times, and it wasn't a particularly well-made, and it wasn't particularly successful. It was just, you know, Elvis was kind of fulfilling a contract or something. Hmm. But those guys, Norbert Putnam and, and some of the Memphis boys, went back not too many years ago and uh, remixed and remastered it. And it, I mean, and then you can kind of hear what it was really like in the actual sessions. And it has a lot of life in it now that it didn't have in its, its first album release. Is there a song from your catalog that you think is maybe underrated that you really like that hasn't exactly gotten a lot of play? Well, <laughs> I think of that, of, of a lot of them that way. It's so hard to know. I mean, the only way I think you know is what, you know, what do people ask for, you know, when you're playing? And one of the songs consistently over the years is a song people ask for is a song called Quits. And I think it could have been a much stronger record under different circumstances. It, it, it wasn't really a song that Atlantic knew how to run. They had hopes of, of being able to connect into the country business, but it, it never worked for them. They didn't really understand country and country thought of them as a you know New York City label and, and never embraced them. And I, we, you know, we had, we got some play with it and a lot of people remembered it, but uh, it was never, you know, it was never a charted song as far as I know. I think Gary uh, Stewart had a charted version of it and I'm, I'm so grateful for him for having cut it. I'm hoping you can tell us how did uh, the song that you wrote, The Road, how did that end up on Jackson Brown's Running on Empty album? The album originally, Jackson had been a friend of mine from you know, the first time that I was in L.A. David Geffen introduced us, and David was managing him, and uh, Jackson hadn't put out his first record at that point. But the record that became Running on Empty was originally called The Road in the Sky, and that was kind of the concept that Jackson had for it. It was going to be a live record, and he was going to, you know, which he did, record you know, the songs in different contexts, you know, from motel room to stage to rehearsal hall, wherever. And he had a song uh, late for the sky, but he didn't have a song about the road. And he liked that song and knew it. And I just, you know, I taught it to him and rest was and is history. I'm very grateful to him for having recorded it. And it was the largest selling record I believe he's ever had. Not the road, but that album, Running on Empty. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Jackson Brown is going to be going back out on the road in a couple of months. What is Jackson Brown like? Oh, he's one of the finest human beings I know. Very bright man, very generous, committed to all kinds of, uh, of compassionate causes. He and Bonnie Raitt over the years and, and others, but, but those two in particular – have probably raised more money for for nonprofit humanitarian issues than anyone else that I know, and that's a hallmark of of their character. They they are very concerned with social and environmental issues, and they're compassionate. 
and they put their money where their mouth is. You know, I, I admire them both and have for many years. Would you say that there's a person in music out there that is more or less your best friend? Well, that's a hard one. I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of friends, but uh, I mean, I would say that, you know, the guy I've worked with the most is a, a guy who plays a bass on a bunch of my later records uh, and is the engineer that I'd use most often, a man named Gary Shelton. is a Seattle uh, engineer and bass player. And I probably, <laughs> just because I've been recording with him for the last 10 or 15 years, uh, probably spend more time in his studio than just about anywhere else except, you know, this little office that I live and work in. And he's not, you know, it's not well known by anyone, but he's kind of my go-to guy when I need to record or make some music. What do you look for in a collaborator? Well, you, you never know. I mean, you know, when you sit down with someone, especially with someone you haven't worked with before, you know, kind of the classic Nashville process is that you get there and you go into a small room, a cubicle at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning and you sit there and look at each other and what do you got? I don't know. What do you got? And, you know, you hope you've taken enough notes that you have a line that you can come up with that you can begin to hang some lyrics and some, you know, some music on. It's, uh, it's always precarious. It's always kind of daunting and then you get a line or you get something that starts to flow and the, the lights go on. And by lunchtime, you have a song all roughed out. You go to lunch and then you come back after that and cut a demo and you're done. You do the same thing day after day until you're crazy. <laughs> you know, we had Vince Melamed on not long ago. who He's written a lot of great songs. He's one of my oldest and dearest friends. He's been my friend for I don't know, just about ever. He and a band that he had called the Mugwumps went out with me on my, um, I think, just about my first tour. And uh, he's been a dear friend ever since. One of the things we talked about was a song that you wrote with Vince Melamed. And I was telling him there have been a couple of people. It's an obscure song. And I think that that speaks to what a what a, a sweet song it is. I like this song a lot, too. And there have been people who have told me that this is their favorite song or one of their favorite mm -hmm. songs. And I'm talking about Souvenirs. You recorded it. And also, and it's a hard-to-find album, but there was a compilation CD. Jimmy Buffett sang it. Can you tell us what inspired Souvenirs? Well, I mean, unfortunately... I didn't realize how many of the people had written songs called souvenirs uh, at that point. So it's, it was kind of a obvious and perhaps somewhat generic title. But, you know, you try to write songs that you think will have a uh, resonate a common feeling with people. And, you know, what what are the what are the experiences that you've had, you know, that you mostly identify with and you think by extension other people will? And, you know, I mean, that's the essence of love songs. You know, we've all had those experiences of love or different situations where, you know, our heart has been swelled or our heart has been broken or whatever, but you remember them, those experiences. And to a great degree, those are your most important souvenirs. 
memories. That's as you grow older, that's what you rely on more than anything else to kind of explain yourself to yourself hmm. and to others. What do you think the best way to deal with a broken heart is? Well, you first want to get some real good weed and uh, some real good alcohol and start that way for about two days and then quit. <laughs> <laughs> and, then be and then begin exercising again and pick up your guitar and see if you can find a way out of the situation through a song. That would be my, my recourse. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that something we should mention Somebody who you share a co-writing credit with is going to turn 80 in, a, in just a few weeks. There's a song, it's called Well, 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 and I got to see Ben yeah. Harper, the great Ben Harper, sing this song. Yeah. How did you come to meet Bob Dylan? Well, I saw Bob Dylan in this little place that I played before I don't even know if he was Bob Dylan then, but he was just another folk singer in the Minneapolis coffee house scene. And I just saw him briefly in this place and I didn't pay much attention to him, but everybody else seemed to know who he was. And he went to New York shortly after that. And within that year or so, I hitchhiked to New York and, you know, I didn't have much in the way of songs. I couldn't play very well, but, you know. When you're 19, you just jump into the fire. You know, you either get burned or you learn how to deal with the heat. <laughs> and so I went to New York. A friend had was moving out of her apartment and said I could stay in that apartment for you know the base you know the rest of the of the month. So I had a place to stay. I had you know no money. I had no clue really about much of anything, especially New York. But I just went in and, and uh, at, on a Monday hoot night at uh, Gertie's Folk City, I just sat in and, you know, sang some songs that were probably not very appropriate for a 19-year-old. And uh, <laughs> Dylan happened to be in the audience uh, sitting at the bar. And I went up to him and said, you know, these people who were friends of mine and said they were friends of yours said to say hello. And he kind of, you know, looked at me like I was bug life. And that was about the first time that I met him. But for whatever reason, Good Time Charlie or, or, you know, if he'd heard a couple of my songs or something, he was starting a publishing. He had the publishing company, but he, he had finally hired somebody to run his songs. And the young woman, Tina Snow, was running the, the company for him, at least in Los Angeles. And, and she had done kind of a brilliant thing. She had found some singers that sounded like the OJs and did a demo. Um, kind of a la the OJs of Forever Young, I think, and pitched it to the OJs, and they went, sure. And I think both Bob and his, his his management realized that she'd hit on something that they had never imagined. For the most part, if you listen to Bob Dylan sing a song, you'd have a hard time imagining yourself singing it. I mean, maybe as a, you know, a comparable guitar player, folk singer or something, maybe you could that way. But if you were a pop singer, you might not figure out how to sing the song once you had Bob's version in your head. And I thought she did a brilliant thing and uh, worked for him for a couple of years, you know, wrote a bunch of songs. And one day she had called me up and said, uh, Bob has a demo here that he'd like to see if you could write lyrics to. And I don't know if that was true, if it was just a pile of 
case sitting around someplace that she had a you know wild idea about getting other people to finish them because Bob certainly wasn't going to. And so, I, I mean, on the tape, there were, you know, you could hear Bob at some point, this is going through a chord change, say, well, well. <laughs> and, you know, I thought it was funny anyway, in in a most ironic way. So I just added another well and made it a song about groundwater. And this is before I even knew what the extent of, you know, groundwater damage by fracking was all about. But as it turns out over the period of time that uh, water is going to be a lot more important than oil. It is already. It's really interesting that, uh, you know, when you look through all the different songs, Bob, there's very few co-writes. There's a few, the late Robert Hunter, Carol Bayer, Sager, and and you, Danny O'Keefe. That's really cool. Well, and there was another guy that we've never... We've never known much about him. Jacques Levy, I think. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. If I recall his name. And I have no idea who that person is or, you know, how we ever connected with Dylan. He's just somebody that I'm not even sure what album the co-writes are. But, and yeah, I think it was, I mean, first of all, Bob doesn't need anybody to help him write. I mean, he's, you know, he's proven that. But, you know, what a, what a rare and wonderful thing to have that opportunity. I wish we'd been sitting in the same room, but we weren't. And I, I think Bob liked the song. He gave it to uh, Maria Moldauer, and she recorded it with Mavis Staples and several other people. Like you said, Ben Harper uh, have recorded it. Bonnie recorded it on a, a VHS show that she did. Has there been an interpretation of a song that you wrote that was surprising to you? And I mean surprising, not not necessarily in a bad way. You just, you heard the way the artist did it and you thought, well, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't have imagined that. Well, I can think of an artist, not necessarily that the way they did the song. I mean, Jim Neighbors surprised me. He did uh, a version of Good Time Charlie. I think on a TV show that he was a host of or something. I can't remember if it was his show or not. And... I mean, and it surprised me partly because I didn't know that he was a a singer and he had a fine voice, but he was always Gomer Pyle. And just that in itself was something that was very surprising to me, although I think he did a a fine version of the song. You know, for somebody who, you know, maybe did something unusual with a song of mine, I can't really think of anyone at the moment. Is there anything on the horizon with Danny O'Keefe, anything you're working on or anything you're planning for the future? Well, I have an album out now that I would uh, love to have more people listen to. It's called Looking Glass and the Dreamers. And you can find you can find it on Amazon. You can go to my website, dannyokeefe.com, and hear some cuts from it. And it's a it's a piece that's uh, you know been a work of love. I started uh, the the first song in 1968, which was kind of the beginning of my career in many ways, and it's taken me all this time to kind of fully realize it in the sense of both completing it and and gaining some understanding of it. And it has to to do with sort of the complex history lesson that I learned from the Nez Perce tribe in the Northwest. And many people are aware of Chief Joseph, who was 
chief of the Wallawa band of the Nez Perce. But a lot of people aren't really familiar with how the Nez Perce lived in the Northwest and who they were and, and the incredible losses that they incurred. And it's, uh, they've been kind of guides for me in so many ways for the last 50 plus years. And this was just a time that felt right to complete it. And there's a, a book that's coming out, you know, that the music is sort of inherently connected to. And we're, we just shot some footage for a video for one of the songs, which is about a great Nez Perce rodeo rider, champion rodeo rider by the name of Jackson Sundown. Your audience can Google Jackson Sundown and read about him. And he was a quite extraordinary man and a, a very famous rodeo rider. So we're, we have a video coming out of that and a book. And, you know, it will be a, a long and slow rollout. It's not necessarily something that, you know, we designed to be, you know, radio hits. But I think when people listen to it, they will they will feel the depth of the emotional resonance in it. Sounds very interesting. We can learn so much from the past. Yep, it's it's here and it, it guides us into the future if we pay attention to it correctly. Hmm. Well, I always like to, to end the show. I just give the guests the stage. Just I give them the microphone. I know that there'll be fans of yours who listen to this. We are able to reach people in, in so many ways these days. But what would you say in closing to anybody who's tuned in with us? Well, you know, of course, my dream and desire is that they, uh, they not only listen, but buy more of my music so I can keep making it for, you know, however much longer I got on the planet. That's the key. There's, there's so many ways to, to listen to music now for free, essentially free. And the artist tends to not get paid very much. You know, you listen to Spotify and, you know, put yourself uh, together, your different lists. And artists are getting very, very little from that. So, you know, if every once in a while you, you know, throw the artist a bone by buying some a song or an album or whatever, maybe merch if they're selling that. Because we haven't been on the road for quite a while and we don't know exactly when that's going to be. So it's been pretty slim pickings for all of us who toil in the in the the vineyards of songsters that's what i would hope that people would continue to support artists that they like not only by listening to their music but by actually buying it it makes all the difference in the world to someone's creative life you know when they <laughs> don't have to go back to ditch digging or washing dishes and they can actually continue the work in their art form well everybody out there go to dannyokeefe.com that's danny o-k-e-e-f-e when you get on there you're going to see that cd he was talking about looking glass and the dreamers but you can get it there and danny o'keefe i i'm really honored that you'd come on the show it's been a pleasure to talk to you i hope i hope i get to meet you in person someday my hope as well paul and thank you and for your audience, I'm also on Facebook, so, you know, you can find me there and we can chat or whatever it is we do on Facebook. <laughs> uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. All right. Thank you so much, Mr. O'Keefe. It's been an honor. Until next time. Thank you. Yep. Be well. 
Goodbye.